we are going to be continuing in a series called Greater Than, and it's a series about priorities. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4 is where we're going to start. So we are talking about this whole idea of priorities, and it's something that you do every single day. It's a skill that you have been honing over the course of your life, and that is the ability to choose between good, better, and best. 31 flavors. When you go there, you need to choose. There's a lot of flavors. You've got to choose which one is best. Last week, we looked at what is essential as a church. We just looked at what is essential as a church, and we talked about a great commandment that was given, which was make disciples. If you're not doing that as a church, you have gotten off course. That is essential. We also looked at the words of Jesus where he said that there's a great love, to love the Lord your God. That's the greatest commandment. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Because this is a series about prioritizing like Jesus, we're going to look to the words of Jesus as being paramount to the discussion. As we looked at what was essential for a church last week, we brought up the play button. Now, this is a symbol that kind of a metaphor, visual metaphor for us as to how we do church here. Who can tell me, besides Ben, who's on paid staff here, what the three points of the triangle of the play button are? We covered them last week. Three points of the play button. Who's got them? Worship and community and share. I'm glad Michael did it because this is going to be fun. Heads up, heads up, heads up. Oh, good. All right. I'm close friends with Jenny Cook, so if I take her out, that's okay. How many of you have no clue about the play button and don't understand that at all? You're completely lost because you weren't here last week. Anyone? All right, right here, Patty. There you go. That'll help you. You can look at that and, uh, and refresh your memory. Today, here's what we want to do. Instead of looking at it as a church, we want to look at first things first for your individual life. What is the top priority for your individual life? Now, as I say that, what, what might come to mind is, well, how arrogant of you to think that you can tell me what that is. Remember, this series is not about anyone from the front handing you your new priorities. That's not what we're setting out to do with this series. I don't want to give you your priorities. Rather, I want you to think of this series this way. I want to come along. Sometimes you come along to your kids, and it's just like you kind of gently take their chin and just kind of lift up their gaze and point them to what you want them to see. Maybe it's a spectacular sunset, and you just, they're down looking at playing whatever, and you just kind of nudge them, wow, so that they see it. What I want to do with this series is this. I don't want to lay out your priorities for me. That's not my role. What I want to do is I want to show you, I just want to remind you of some verses that you probably already have heard a hundred times. But I want to highlight them in such a way to just kind of gently lift your chin to see that does seem pretty essential. And in the hecticness of life, in the 100-mile-per-hour world we live in, I've forgotten that, or that has dropped in importance to me. I want you to think about what it is that you spend time protecting. What is it that you spend time, invest time and energy in guarding or protecting? Now, we've got some moms in the room, right? Moms spend their time protecting their kids, especially when they're little. I was out yesterday with my kids, 
And we are constantly counting and looking and making sure of what's happening, right? And I watched other moms, just keenly aware of other moms of little mobile monsters that roam around and cars that don't see them, and they are constantly checking and rechecking and double-checking. So kids are something that we, that we do that with. Maybe what comes to mind is your home or your car or maybe your digital identity. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to, to pay attention to, right, in terms of security and what you guard. Chances are many of you here thought of others, that you protect others. I'm a protector of others or stuff. Certainly your brain goes to things that are valuable. You don't protect that which is not valuable. But I would venture to guess that very few of you had a gut initial reaction that said, myself. And yet, I want to show you from Proverbs chapter 4, you can look there with me if you're, if you're there, 4.23 says this. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else. That sounds pretty important, doesn't it? That sounds like that's something that should live at the top of our to-do list. Not like something we just do once and then we check it off and we never revisit it. In the same way that we don't guard and protect our valuables once and then never think about it again. We come back and double check. Are things okay? Are things in line? Above all else, guard your heart. Think about the great commandment that we just said. Jesus is questioned. He says, what's the greatest commandment? It's love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. Now, there's some other things he lists, but notice the prominent place of the heart there. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. On and on and on, the scriptures talk about the heart. And it talks about the heart so much because the heart is absolutely central to all of life. So how do you guard it? What does it look like to guard your heart? Maybe you guard your heart in the same way uh, that someone might guard a Maserati. They have an exotic sports car. They took it out once to go enjoy it, but it got scratched by someone at Trader Joe's. And they spent all their time buffing it out, and they were so worried it would, get, it would get dented or hurt again that they keep it locked in the garage, they keep it closed in, and, and nothing is going to touch that car ever again. And maybe that's how some of you guard your heart. Maybe it's more like a Jeep. Uh, a Jeep's security system is really, really simple. Um, if you value it, don't put it in your Jeep. That's it, Okay. <laughs> Because, because it will be taken. It will be at least looked at, and people think somehow that's an aisle at a shopping store for some reason because it's there and available. Now, you can pretend that you no longer care. People who have had their heart just rummaged through and grabbed on and all of that, they, they look like they're really tough. They put on this veneer that they're really tough, and they almost act like they don't have a heart. But the truth is, they do care that people rummage through there. So in their world, they've stopped putting anything valuable in there. Maybe uh, you guard your heart the way you would a lime green Ford Pinto. A lime green Ford Pinto that you bought for 100 bucks 
isn't all that valuable to you. It's an old beater, right? So other people abuse it. They don't see it as valuable. You don't see it as valuable. You actually join in on the abuse. And maybe you in this room, or maybe you've known someone who just, they've lost heart so bad that they don't have much value there anymore. And they actually will jump in line to heap abuse on things that they actually used to hold dear. Eventually, when that happens, it dies. I would suspect many of us in this room are more like the minivan. The minivan uh, security system is this. You hit the alarm. You lock it most of the time. Right? You keep it in the garage, but then you forget about it. You don't spend a whole bunch of time thinking about it. Honestly, if they get into the minivan, they're going to get old French fries and some old crafts and, you know, whatever. Kind of a cheesy stereo. You're not, you're not too concerned about it. And the scriptures say, above all else, guard your heart. Where are you on this list? Maserati, Jeep, Pinto, minivan, maybe something else. This morning, a part of this morning is this. Um, that I want to elevate uh, this thought about what it looks like to guard your heart um, before we even move on to, uh, to some other things. Because from it flow the wellsprings of life. Jesus knew the value of your heart. Now, when we talk about this, he's not really concerned about your blood pumping muscle, right? There's something much deeper there. And that's what we're talking about. Listen to what he says in one of his most famous sermons, Matthew 6.21. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart, Jesus knew that that taps into something. It taps into our values. It taps into what we worship. It actually begins to determine the course of our life based on what's in our heart. We guard our hearts because from it flow values and life. Now, yesterday I had a vivid illustration of this. This is Marianne's ice cream. And we were there. And Marianne's is very, very exciting in our, in our household because you get to eat ice cream. And that's a good thing. But it got even more exciting when a Chevy Avalanche decided to take out the fire hydrant. And, uh, and as I'm watching this, seeing this sight, I thought, wow, there it is. There's the wellspring of life, right? Just pouring out and flooding out. In Luke, Jesus talks about what comes from the good heart and what comes from the evil heart. And all through the scriptures, we could just do an entire study and just get, get so much from this. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to linger uh, for the rest of the morning, for the most part, on a very, very short, simple story. Sometimes a really simple story can utterly change your life. Matthew chapter 13 Uh, And verse 44 is where we'll be. Jesus was always teaching in stories and metaphor. Think about how you would explain math to a kid. You probably wouldn't crack open a book and start drawing things and all of that. Instead, you might use a story. You might say, listen, uh, you've got ten pieces of candy, you've got five friends, and you want to be kind to all of them, and you don't want to cause a fight. Here's what you would do. And then you'd start taking that candy and moving it into piles. And before you know it, you would be teaching them math. What you're doing is you're moving from the known into the unknown. And you know what Jesus does masterfully? He does exactly that. He takes what we can understand, what we know, and then he gradually moves us on to what we don't know so he can show us what it's like. 
This little tiny story that he's going to tell is in a greater context. If you read all of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, you would hear over and over again this phrase, the kingdom of God is like. And then Jesus will begin to talk and share some things. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. And on and on he goes sharing this. Now, there's no end of opinions and speculation about this topic. What is the kingdom of God like? Right now, there's a movie in the theater called Heaven is for Real. I mean, it's still going on. And in Jesus' day, the kingdom of God is like, that wasn't a unique thing. Oh, he's going to tell us about the kingdom. The difference was Jesus accompanied his teaching with signs and miracles, and Jesus taught as one who actually looked like he knew what he was talking about. So he says this in Matthew 13, 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I took the title this morning from the late great poet Rich Mullins. He was a Christian musician. And I don't know if you've ever done this. I had a conversation with someone recently who bought something that was exciting to them, and they told me how they had to sell off other things to get that thing. I don't know if you've ever, either as a kid or maybe more recently, just just thought, man, I need to sell some things off so that I can get this. I really, really want this. And all of a sudden, this thing that I want now is more valuable than these other things that I saved up for in an earlier season, but I've got to have this. And so you, so you sell off what you have so that you can get this thing. What Jesus is talking about is a guy who, who does that to the extreme. He goes off and he sells all that he has to ensure that he has enough money to buy this field. Why? Because there's something supremely valuable in that field. Here's what's amazing about it, and the part I want to key in this morning. More than just going and doing the buying and the selling, it says that he does it joyfully. Why does he go off and do this joyfully? The only reason you go off and do this joyfully is if you've found something that is exceedingly more valuable, and you're utterly convinced it's more valuable than all your stuff, than everything else. So then, in your joy, would you go and buy that? The kingdom of God. This same point is driven home by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, right? And all these other things that the world chases after, that, that's all going to be added to you. Your heavenly Father knows your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God. So what is this kingdom of God? Uh, my son was having a conversation with someone at his school uh, earlier in the school year, and he happened to say to the guy, he said, I'm a Christian. And the guy, the guy, his friend, asked him back a great question. He said, what do you mean by the fact that you're a Christian? That's a great question. It's a qualifier that's really needed, isn't it? Because to say that I'm a Christian could mean I'm an American. It could mean something totally different. And so uh, let me, let me th- throw off a couple of things. Uh, some people would view being a Christian as a box to check off 
as your religious affiliation on a form of some sort, right? What's your religious affiliation? Uh, no, 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 I guess Christian. That one, that one matches the best. It could be a label that you wear when you come to church on Sundays or when you attend major holidays. In fact, it would actually determine which major holidays you would acknowledge, right? It could be the flavor of wedding and funeral that you will have, and that's all it means to you. It means that you'll get married as a Christian and you'll get buried as a Christian. Uh, maybe it is the brand of church that you go to once a week. If it is an affiliation, a label, a flavor, or a brand... Here's what I think. I don't think that you go and sell everything you have to obtain that. You know why? Because if it's just a brand, an affiliation, a flavor for a season, it means that it doesn't really relate to much of your life. I mean, how many of you have your funeral all planned out and tidied up and neat and ready to go? Okay, one, Sadie Cook. That's a planner. Actually, knowing Sadie, I, I wouldn't even doubt that. You know why? Because that's out there somewhere. I mean, we, we're going to need that at some point, but that's not relevant right now. It doesn't really matter right now to me. So what does it do? It doesn't make the top of your priority list, right? You certainly don't go sell all you have, and you certainly wouldn't trade all you have joyfully for an affiliation, for a little check mark, so that you now have a label for what kind of a wedding and funeral you're going to have. Going to sell all that you have, not only voluntarily, but joyfully, is something radically different from that. When you go sell all that you have and voluntarily and joyfully purchase a field because you found that treasure, it means that your life is going to begin to change. Other things about your life will begin to change. One of the noticeable things about a Christian is this. When a person places their faith in Christ, their life begins to change. They stop doing some things, and they start doing other things. Now, it was one of my friend's favorite pastimes in high school when I, um, when I got serious about my walk with the Lord, and I said, I'm yours, God. I get it. I get the treasure. It was a favorite pastime of my non-Christian friend's to point out these changes. Oh, you're not going to do that anymore because a Christian doesn't do that anymore, right? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. Oh, you're going to start doing that now because that's what Christians do, right? Kind of. And I couldn't really articulate it early on, but but as I walked forward in my Christian walk, here's here's what I had a hard time doing. I had a hard time moving it from humor, first of all, because it was all just massively funny to my friends that I was doing these kinds of things. But I had a hard time moving them from understanding, you know, I'm not doing this for an affiliation. I'm not doing this for an institution. I'm not doing this because the church tells me I have to do this. I'm doing this because I'm in love. I'm doing this because I've met a person and I'm now following him and I'm in love. And, And love changes things. It changes your behavior. It's voluntary. It's joyful. No one's beating me over the head to have to do this. I'm not trying to earn rank. And that message was certainly lost on many of my buddies. Think about marriage for a minute. I can't think of a single husband who would get up off the couch to sacrificially serve his wife for the institution of marriage. I love marriage so much. I I honor that institution. I'm going to put down the nachos, pause the game, 
and serve you, dear. What do you need? You don't do that for an institution. Amen? Amen. Man, be with me on that. But you do it for love, right? The wives are all sometimes. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll work on that. There's room to grow. There's room to grow. Graciousness, right? You do crazy things for love. You actually lay down your own will and, and you voluntarily get up. You joyfully do these things. Those on the outside who aren't in love, they, they wouldn't understand that. They would look at that and go, that's silly. That's dumb. What a waste. You're giving up all of that for her, for him, for love? And try as you might, it's hard to explain to someone who's in that frame of mind. That was me and some of my friends from high school when I was first just getting my, my feet under me about this walk with the Lord. And I'd been taught in Sunday school all these years, but it was institution. It was, it was a different thing. And all of a sudden, it was something totally different. I was that guy who thought, man, I'll sell it all. I have to have this treasure. And it's a good deal. I'm getting out on the good end of this. Remember from a few weeks ago, the idea of making the playoffs? If you take a sports team, the whole season is all about working towards something very, very, very important, the playoffs. Now, I know Sharks fans right now have a churning stomach right now. I'm sorry to bring up the playoffs, okay? It's, it didn't go how I wanted it to either. But it's all about making the playoffs, right? And then after you make the playoffs, it's not like you're just in, you kick your feet up, you're like, woo, we're there. Every game after that becomes really, really important. But if you don't make the playoffs, your season ends early and all of that is for naught. Entrance into the kingdom of God, obtaining that treasure is making the playoffs. It's all, your life is pointing toward this kingdom of God. And Jesus is holding out, this is what's most important. Everything you could sell, everything you could leave behind, it's all worth it so that you might obtain the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure that's been buried in a field. Making the playoffs citizenship in God's kingdom doesn't require money, doesn't require superstars, doesn't require you passing an entrance exam, doesn't require you living clean and pure and, and holy for six months before you get in, doesn't even require credentials on your part. It does require something, though. requires faith. The Bible's very, very plain on this. The righteous will live by faith. Now, it's not a blind faith. It's not a blind leap. You don't need to check reason at the door. All kinds of nonsense that's been misconstrued with that phrase. But it is a requirement as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said these words, I, Jesus, am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father, except through me. Now, that requires faith to accept that. It requires faith to reject that. You're going you're to have your basis on one of those two things. So the very start of your Christian walk, many of you in this room have walked with Christ for a long time. The very start of your Christian walk began as a walk of faith. And it began trusting in Jesus saying this. Now, through the centuries, men and women from all walks of life and all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of different locations have continued and continually put their faith in this Jesus Christ. And their stories are left for us to instruct us, to inspire us. And what I want to do this morning with the remainder of our time 
is I want to just talk about three groups. We could go on and on with this, but I just want to really bring some focus and share about three groups of people. The first are the disciples. The disciples were called by Jesus. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. We don't know what some of the others were, but these fishermen and tax collectors follow a carpenter. That's the storyline. But they didn't leave their career to go enter a different career. They left their career to follow a person. And Jesus put it this way. Follow me, fishermen. We're in a seaport town of Galilee. I'll make you fishers of men. And they didn't say, hot dog, here's a new career opportunity. I'm going to go follow this guy. They followed him as a person, not just a change of careers. As they learned about this kingdom of heaven that Jesus preached about, he preached some really hard lessons. At one point, he's getting, he's getting to a point where he's starting to talk about what, what we can look back on and see, oh, that's communion. That's the fact that Jesus died and offered himself, and he's leaving that as a practice for us to remember him and partake in him and, and commune together um, around the Lord's table. But falling on the ears of Jewish people the first time, who would never in a million years defile themselves by eating the flesh and drinking the blood of anything, when Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood, the Bible makes this great understatement in the book of John. It was a hard saying. It was a really hard saying. Hard, so hard, that people began to leave. Crowds would thin out after they heard this. You can just jot this down. John chapter 6, verse 66. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, No shock. He's usually the one who speaks up for the group. Lord, to whom shall we go? Notice that it's a person. Not to what occupation will we go? To whom would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, there's that faith component, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We've sold all that we have, Jesus to do whatever it takes to make sure we get this field because we've come to believe and we know that you're the treasure. You're the, you're the prize. The way forward's really hard. We're a little unsure about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. That sounds downright scary, gory, gross, and defiling. But we know that the option of going back is not an option. We know that you're the treasure. Verse 70 of that same passage, very next verse, gives us the next person I want to focus on. I've called out the disciples. I really meant the 11. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the 12? I don't know how long pauses are in the Bible, but that sounds really warm and fuzzy to me. Come here, guys. Did I not? The 12! Here you are. People are leaving in droves. Did I not choose you, the twelve? Everyone's like, mm. and yet one of you is the devil. So you say, again, you, say, you don't know how long the pauses are. I don't know if he's like, guys, come here, the twelve. Bing. 
one of you is a devil. It's like, oh, he's always hanging a left when you expect him to veer right. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We don't even know uh, for sure that Judas uh, knew at this point that he was the one. Don't we tend to like mark out Judas? I mean, you, you kind of think of Judas as like, you know, spiny little guy, always kind of a weasel, you know, the whole story. But he held the money bag. He was obviously trustworthy in the minds of the disciples to that. He didn't raise enough suspicion that when Jesus mentions at the Last Supper, hey, one of you is going to betray me, or when he mentions it here, they all go, got to be Judas. I always suspected him. They look around, who, who is it, Lord? Who, who could this possibly be? Here's part of the warning for my own heart, for your own heart. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. He was there in the miracles. He was there for the teaching. He was there for the remarkable things. And maybe at this point, didn't even know he was the one. Judas the betrayer. He made a value judgment. He saw the greater than sign and he thought about his options that were in front of him. He began to see that following Jesus would lead to suffering and was kind of scary. Betraying Jesus was going to get him some financial gain. So we see that he goes to the chief priest. He betrays Jesus, greater than. When Jesus says, where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He goes on to say this, you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve God and money. You'll love one and hate the other, or despise one and serve the other. They're, they're pitted against each other. Judas lived that out. It didn't really seem to bother Judas, at least for a time. For a time, he was okay with the wealth he had made, but at some point in time, he realized that he traded his relationship with Christ for some wealth. And what does he do with the wealth? He begins to despise the wealth. He despises the choice he's made. I haven't just avoided some suffering and made a little cash on the side. I've given up the treasure. What does he do with the wealth? Remember? He goes and chucks it back at the very people that he'd sold Jesus out to. We don't want it. That's blood money. We paid you off. That's your problem. The unfortunate and vivid demise of Judas is a lesson to us. Judas didn't guard his heart. Judas made a choice. Judas realized his choice, evidently on some level, before he died. And then he took his own life. Apparently thought there's nothing else worth living for. I had it in my grasp, and it's gone. I've sold my relationship out with Christ for some wealth. He wasn't the last disciple to do so. There had to be many others. It's not hard to look around our day and age and see people do that. Paul explicitly calls out some who says their faith was shipwrecked. They, they went off course because of things. Remember the four soils. The, the word of God seems to take root, but it's choked out by the pleasures of this world. Guard our hearts. 
Every single choice that you make is a graphic illustration of what drives you, of what's in your heart, of what you hold valuable. Last one is Paul. Paul wasn't won over by an idea or a philosophy. In fact, if you read Paul's story, Paul was advancing in philosophy and religion and ideas. He was exceptional at it. He's probably one of the greatest minds who ever lived. But none of that won him over. What won him over is that he met a person. He met Jesus Christ living. And he was never the same. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3. We're going to close out here. Philippians 3, verse 7. I want you to see a passage for yourself. And if you're a student of the Bible at all, if you've read the Bible at all, you'll begin to be able to think of other dramatic things that Paul wrote. Paul wrote some amazing, sweeping statements about the value of knowing Christ. But more than writing about it, he lived it. His story is a testimony of the things that he wrote about. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of of all things, and count them as rubbish. That's a British word for trash. In order that I may gain Christ. You want to dangle fame in front of me? Nonsense. You want to dangle wealth, pleasure, comfort, ease, security, fulfillment, love? Nonsense. I count that all as trash. When the option it's up against is the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I don't know about you, but when I read a statement like that, I, it draws me to my knees to say, God, help me. Forgive me for not treasuring that which I think about every single day for sure is my walk with Christ, my relationship with Christ, who I am in Christ. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that a lot. But God help me for not treasuring it like I should. And I say that very intentionally. God help me. I don't have the strength to keep that in focus the way I want it to be in focus. It's easy to want it to be in focus on a sunny morning. Again, when someone just lifts your chin and says, don't you see the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ? Don't you see that seeking first these things, so many other things get taken care of. And in here, we say, yes, we see it. But Wednesday afternoon, it loses focus sometimes, doesn't it? In the crunch and the heat of argument, when things don't go according to plan, when we're dangled with some things and some shiny objects, it it all of a sudden starts to get hazy. The call to follow Jesus is unconditional and total surrender. Billy Graham used to close out his crusades. I've been to, I think, a couple of them in my day with a song called I Surrender All. You may have heard it before. It's an incredible lyric. 
And as people are singing, I surrender all, here are people walking forward. And the thought behind it is this. There's no guesswork in what God's going to ask from me next. Because he doesn't want 10% of your job. 90%, you do it however you want. 10%, I want you to honor me with how you do your business and and do your work and do your schoolwork. He doesn't want 10% of your relationships. You go live how you want. But 10% of the time, at least check in with me. doesn't want 10% of your wealth. doesn't want 10% of your mind, your affection, 10% of your vacation, 10% of anything. He wants it all. So it really does remove the guesswork of what's he going to start taking from next? If you are not voluntarily and joyfully surrendering all, then don't walk the aisle at Billy Graham Crusades. You don't get it. You, You actually miss the equation if it feels like I guess so. If you're in that mode, you you don't see it. And I would say in all seriousness, please, don't don't make a decision yet. There's more work that needs to be done. You you need to get a clearer picture of what that is. What happens is people say they're Christians or they've tried Jesus. And what they mean by that is this. I've got a box that I checked off. I've got a flavor of wedding and funeral that I'll do. I've got a certain brand of church that I go to. I added Jesus to my already busy life, and it just quasi-worked. There was some comfort, for sure. There was some great potlucks and fellowship that went on. But verdict's still out on things. I think for many, many people who sit in churches on a Sunday morning who are working toward that are, are in that camp. There are some huge implications for those who are religiously seeking out these matters diligently seeking to find the way of life in God. And there are implications for those who aren't. If you, if you look at the parable in Matthew 13.44, and you take it in, in context with, with the next one, you have two parables about treasure being found, everything being sold to get it, but there's one little nuanced difference. The first guy seems to almost just stumble upon it. He's in a field and he found it. The second guy is seeking out pearls. And he finds the pearl of great price. He finds the the pearl to end all pearls. And he sells everything so that he can get that one. You know what's crazy about that? That means this. If you have been diligently seeking the way of God, and you are in here this morning, you're the one who's out seeking for this. And the offer of God sits in front of you. But some of you have wandered in here by dumb luck. Some of you began your Christian walk. You were the furthest thing from looking for God. You may have been at your farthest point in your mind from God. And what happened? You stumbled upon a treasure buried in a field. So whether you're looking for it or whether you're not, the offer of God is there. What's the offer of God? Is it being loved by God? Yes, but something even greater than that. Is it being justified before God? Yes, but something greater than that. Is it avoiding the punishment that sin deserves? The wrath of God towards sinners? Yes, there's forgiveness, but something even more than that. The greatest prize 
is God himself. That is the prize. All those other things get added in with the deal. But God himself is the highest and best prize. Once you see that, you do whatever it takes to make sure that you get in on that. Now, the Christian life is about selling all so that you can be sure that you get this field with this buried treasure. And once you do that, you find something really, really remarkable. Just jot this down if you're taking notes and you want to check me on it later. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. We're giving a lot of preeminence to the words of Jesus because we want to prioritize like Jesus. Here's what he says to his disciples. He says, fear not, little flock. By the way, every single time Jesus says, fear not, don't worry, I've got authority, I'm going to give it to you. These are all things speaking to our heart. This is what we do to our kids. We speak to our kids' heart. I love you. I'm thrilled about you. I care about you a lot. Careful over here. There's some danger over here. You look really scared. Let me speak into that. This is heart language. Fear not, little flock. Catch this. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the Christian life is a call to give it all up so that we might get the kingdom of God. And then when we get there, we find a gracious heavenly father. He's not stingy. He's not angry. He's not reluctant. You know what he's doing? He's gladly giving us the kingdom. It's his great pleasure to give us the kingdom. That means we don't just squeak into heaven and we have to sit at the party like this. Father's like this. He's not even standing He's running towards sinners. Is this not good news for sinners? If you're a sinner here today, praise God. God is running towards you. This is great news for the ungodly. I end on the notes with this. And everyone can, a many can, and a few can. Just a few thoughts to take this forward. The guarding of our heart is necessary because we wander, we forget, we lose sight, we get duped by the less than. And like Judas, we can make a bad choice. Here's what everyone can do this morning. Everyone, no matter how aligned you are with Christ, how much you believe of this, how long you've been walking with Jesus, or whether you're an atheist, everyone in this room can check your heart security. Just adding your heart security and thinking about it to the top of your list might change a lot of things about the weeks to come for you. Above all else, guard your heart, for from the heart flow the wellsprings of life. So everyone can check your heart security. Maybe you're doing great, awesome. Most of you probably need some help with that. I know I do. How about many? Many in this room can simply rejoice. You ever put that as an action item out of preaching on a Sunday morning? You know what your action item is, Christian? Rejoice. Go have your quiet time this week. Go live your life. Go do your work. Go be in relationships. But do it joyfully. Your name is written in heaven. That's not going to change. That's a really, really great action step. But it sounds like, that doesn't sound like work or self-harm. No, it's not. Go have a party about it. 
Go walk in this great news. Go celebrate that. A few. A few can take the huge next step of faith by the field. Maybe there's a handful in here. Maybe my faith is too small. Maybe there's a handful that need to take that next big step that says, you know what, I've been duped by, by Christianity light, by a false version of what, of what it means to be a Christian. I, I need to buy the field. I need to leave it all behind. Selling all might mean ending a relationship. It might mean changing jobs. It might mean picking up a new habit. You know what I don't want? I don't want you to walk the aisle of I surrender all if you're kind of weighing the 60-40 proposition. But if you see it this morning, or you've been reminded of your first love this morning, and you thought, wow, I'm awfully close to being in danger of selling out Christ for X, Y, Z. Man, come back. We don't even need to do some big dramatic thing. We're not doing 27 verses of I Surrender All this morning. That's not how we're going to do this. This happens just right now. That's me, Lord. I'm going to do that. You help me do that. God help me. I see this. This is what's needed. This is what's been missing. Most of you know this, but the songs that we sing and pick are just exceedingly thought through and prayed through. And um, Music has this way of... of filtering in and uh, augmenting things that we're hearing with our mind, thinking with our will, feeling with our emotion. As we sing this morning, um, my heart's prayer for you is this, that you just, just kind of evaluate this. Here's a great question. Have I bought the field? Have I sold everything so I can have this field? And if so, am I, am I treasuring that? Am I celebrating that? Am I rejoicing in that? Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your patience with us, for the way that you have a way of looping back and teaching us some of the the same basic principles that get lost in our schedule. I pray this morning, God, that those who can say with certainty, I'm found in you. I know I'm covered by the blood of Christ. I know that I'm yours. I know that I have the kingdom of heaven. God, I pray that you would stir in them Fresh vitality for that, God. A reorienting of maybe some things that have gotten out of whack. Father, for those who are still processing, I thank you and praise you for our mind and for our heart and for conversation and for people and for your revealed word and for those in history who have gone before, all of whom lay evidence before us to look at, all of whom lay examples for us to glean and learn from. God, as we sing right now, may it be from a, a place in our heart, not just forming in our lips.